Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash seanmunger, and if you become a patron... I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. I wish to leave the world. It is all vanity and vexation of spirit. But it is a cruel thing to die innocently. Yet I freely forgive everyone and die in charity with all the world, but cannot forget my injured innocence. Elizabeth Fenning, July 26th, 1815. Two hundred and ten years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was the time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 54, The Dumplings of Death On the morning of July 26, 1815, in a small cell in London's notorious Fleet Prison, a young woman named Elizabeth Fenning, usually called Eliza, aged 22, awakened at 4 o'clock a.m. and began praying fervently. She continued in prayer off and on for the next three hours. She then got dressed in a white muslin gown with a matching cap and lavender-colored boots, It said she clipped and gave locks of her hair to admiring fans in the prison, of which she had many, and she called out, Goodbye to all of you, as she walked through the stone-walled corridor toward the prison yard. Eliza Fenning was one of three prisoners executed that same day. The others were a man convicted of raping a child and another convicted of sodomy, a notorious crime in Regency-era England. A large crowd had gathered to watch the executions, which was normal in that time and place, Executions were public spectacle, but this one was particularly notorious. As the hangman was fastening ropes around her arms and waist in preparation for putting the noose around her neck, a prison official is said to have called out, Elizabeth, I most solemnly adjure you, in the name of that God, before whose presence you are about to appear, if you know anything of the crime for which you are about to suffer, make it known. 
Eliza Fenning shouted back, Before God, then, I die innocent. The hood that the executioner had brought to cover her face during the hanging turned out to be too small. Therefore, he took a pocket handkerchief instead and started to blindfold her with it. Evidently, the handkerchief had been used. Eliza begged him not to do it. It was filthy, but to no avail. He tied it around her head. The three prisoners stood on the gallows, ropes at the ready. Eliza Fenning's last words were to one of her fellow convicts, a man named Oldfield. I am innocent, she said. The hangman pulled the lever that opened the trap door. All three of the condemned dropped instantly, twitched a bit, and soon hung dead from the ropes. The crowd that had gathered to watch Elizabeth Fenning's execution was estimated at an incredible 50,000. It was a huge rush of humanity. One of them was a journalist and writer, William Hone, age 35. He later wrote about the execution. Quote, I got into an immense crowd that carried me along with them against my will. At length I found myself under the gallows where Eliza Fenning was to be hanged. I had the greatest horror of witnessing an execution, and of this particular execution, a young girl of whose guilt I had grave doubts. But I could not help myself. I was closely wedged in. She was brought out. I saw nothing, but I heard all. I heard her protesting her innocence. I heard the prayer. I could hear no more. I stopped my ears and knew nothing else till I found myself in the dispersing crowd and far from that dreadful spot. End quote. Elizabeth Fenning, who made a meager living as a household servant in London, was executed for the crime of attempted murder. Several months earlier, on March 21, 1815, Eliza baked a pan of dumplings as part of the meal for her employers, the Turner family, at number 68 Chancery Lane, whose male members worked in a local law office. Shortly after eating the dumplings, four members of the Turner family grew suddenly and violently ill. Eliza, who also ate the dumplings, was also sick. Eventually, they all recovered. No one died as a result of the bad dumplings, but the seed of Eliza's own death had already been planted. A surgeon who examined the pan of dumplings, John Marshall, believed they'd been laced with arsenic, an amount sufficient to kill 360 people. There was no question, at least in Marshall's mind and of the authorities who tried the case, that it was an open and shut case of attempted murder. But the rest of London wasn't so sure. The newspapers had printed a number of items suggesting that Eliza was innocent and that an out-of-control justice system had railroaded her to the gallows. In the public mind, suspicion fell not on Eliza, but on her employers, the Turner family. After Eliza's funeral, which 10,000 Londoners attended, a mob gathered outside 68 Chancery Lane to harass the Turners. Threats were made to burn down their house. Though constables dispersed the crowd, they kept coming back, several hundred for the next few nights. Eventually, a policeman had to stake out the Turner house for their own safety. The likely reality of the case was totally missed by the public. The genesis of the incident that led to the Dumplings accusation appears to have involved Eliza trying to defend herself against an attempted sexual assault. She said as much at her trial, but was ignored. There were several layers of injustice on this case, which must be peeled back like the layers of an onion. Few of them were. Although Eliza was dead, William Hone, the journalist, was not ready to give up on her. He continued to collect evidence, interview witnesses, and make statements to various officers and politicians. A book published in London in the last half of 1815 set out the particulars of the affair, 
and utterly annihilated the prosecution's case. This was an era before documentary film, long before Netflix shows like Making a Murderer, and even decades before French writer Emile Zola put pen to paper to protest the conviction of French army officer Alfred Dreyfus for treason. Indeed, what we now know of as investigative journalism didn't exist in the second decade. William Hone, in fact, largely invented it as a result of his outrage over Eliza Fenning's wrongful execution. Within two years, William Hone would find himself on trial, his writings exposing the hypocrisies of the British power structure having offended some pretty important people. As it turns out, the cases involving William Hone, first the trial of Eliza Fenning in 1815 and then his own odyssey in court in December 1817, were critical milestones in the establishment of freedom of the press in democratic societies. Eliza Fenning was not just the cause celebre of her day, catnip for a media news cycle that moved considerably slower in the second decade than it does in our own time. Like so many other things in the 18-teens, it was to have a lasting effect on law, on legal precedent, and on the way we see investigative journalism in the Western world, a topic that's vitally relevant today, especially in the current turmoil over police violence and state crackdowns against popular demonstrations. It all started, arguably, in a kitchen on Chancery Lane in London in March 1815, and a plate of dumplings that changed the world. Join me now as we dig into the bizarre but true story of The Dumplings of Death. Good evening. Before we get into the substance of tonight's show, a couple of brief announcements as usual. I have a new class available on my website, seanmunger.com. It's an audio-only class on the history of the first Persian Gulf War of 1990 and 91 in seven sessions, a concise but fairly robust deep dive into the background, history, and legacy of one of the most consequential conflicts in modern history, which has become curiously obscure in recent years as has been overshadowed by other events, especially the second Iraq War of 2003. One of my clients and students suggested that I offer some audio-only classes, given my experience in podcasting. Since you all, the listeners of this show, obviously enjoy that, I think you might like my Persian Gulf War class as well. It's $25, or is also available if you sign up for a subscription to my classes, which is only $5 a month. You can also get access to my other courses, including the Vietnam War, Pearl Harbor, and Understanding Vladimir Putin. Just go to my website, seanmunger.com, and click on My Courses, and you should see it listed. I will soon be putting out a second edition of my novel from 2016, The Valley of Forever. This is a science fiction magical realism book focusing on a disastrous event in time that repeats itself infinitely and has repercussions for the past and the future, a rumination on the nature of time which has a lot of historical dimensions. If you've been with Second Decade since the beginning, you might remember me advertising this book in the very early days of the podcast. Well, for a number of reasons, the sense of isolation and timelessness that many of us have experienced during the coronavirus pandemic has made the Valley of Forever more relevant in 2021 than it was in 2016, hence another edition. Look for it on Amazon, and I hope it will be available in an audiobook version as well. 
Shout outs to some other podcasts. Mark Vinette's show, The History of North America, continues to get traction. Please do check that out. You should be familiar with Nathaniel Lloyd's Historical Blindness podcast. If you aren't, you absolutely should be. He's been doing some great stuff lately about myths, misconceptions, and false narratives in history, which is an interest of mine as well, as you may know. A few months ago, I got into the Night Reader podcast by Dylan C., a very interesting guy who has a lot to say about Herman Melville and Moby Dick. There's a certain kinship between this show and Night Reader, as it's also focused on the early to mid-19th century. Dylan isn't just reading Moby Dick, but he's doing a lot of analysis, much of it historical. It really is a unique show, so check it out. Finally, there are my other podcasts, Green Screen, the environmental movie podcast, and Age of Confusion, my new show, which is an alternate history show, a fictional reimagining of U.S. and world history from 1963 to 1985. It's now up on all the major podcatchers, so if you're interested, I hope you'll give it a try. It's not necessarily for everyone, but I think at least some of you will be into it. Now, let's delve back into the strange case of Eliza Fenning and the arsenic dumplings of Chancery Lane, speaking of disastrous events that echo throughout history. Elizabeth Fenning was born on June 10, 1793, on the island of Dominica. That's a small Caribbean island located between Guadeloupe and Martinique, which was nominally a French colony but effectively under the control of the British. Her father, William Fenning, though born in England, spent a lot of time in Ireland. He joined the military, and when his regiment was dispatched to Dominica in 1790, he brought his wife there. They returned to Britain in 1796 or 97. William was discharged from the military in 1802. The Fennings were lower class, not very well-to-do. The father wound up working at a potato warehouse in London, Eliza's mother as an upholsterer. Eliza herself went to work as a domestic servant at age 14. Domestic service was the major occupation of lower-class urban people in Britain at this time. The aristocracy could still afford armies of maids, footmen, and gardeners, and even families we would consider middle-class could usually afford a few servants. In January 1815, Eliza obtained a position in the household of Orlebar Turner, who lived at 68 Chancery Lane, London. Turner was a law stationer. That meant he published and sold legal documents and forms used by lawyers, and also made official copies of legal instruments. This was apparently a family business. Orlebar's son, Robert Gregson Turner, was also in this business. Robert becomes important in the story later. And there were two apprentices at the stationer's business, Roger Gadsden and Thomas King, about 17 or 18 years old, who also lived on site. Robert, the son, as you recall, was married, and his wife Charlotte lived there too, as well as Orlebar's wife Margaret. So we're talking about a fairly substantial household. Eliza was hired as a cook, and there was a maid too, Sarah Peer. Servants usually lived on site in these places. Sometime in the winter of 1815, a fateful incident occurred. Eliza Fenning left her room in the Turner's household in search of a candle, she went to the room occupied by the young apprentices, Gadsden and King. She was observed by Charlotte Turner, Robert's wife, coming out of the room partially undressed, a partial clue as to what might have happened inside. It was very indecent of her to go into the young men's room thus undressed, Charlotte testified at Eliza's trial. She said, quote, 
I reproved her severely the next morning for her conduct. The excuse was that she was going to fetch the candle. I threatened to discharge her and gave her warning to quit, but she showed contrition. I forgave her for it and retained her. End quote. Eliza was apparently a good cook, and there was one recipe that she said she excelled at, dumplings. Several times that winter, she told various members of the household she was good at that and wanted to make them. On March 21, 1815, Eliza got some brewer's yeast, which was delivered to the Turner household. Charlotte finally relented and allowed her to make dumplings for the family's dinner that afternoon. In Britain in the second decade, the largest meal of the day was usually taken about two or three in the afternoon. Eliza prepared several courses for the family's dinner that day. In addition to the dumplings, there were beef steaks and potatoes and a steak pie intended for the young apprentices, so the dumplings were pretty much a side dish. Despite her skill at cooking, the dumplings didn't turn out too well. She'd put a pan of them next to the fire in the kitchen about 11 a.m. while she took the pie to a local baker to cook. That's how food was sometimes done in urban London at this time. You made your food and then brought it to a professional baker. When Eliza came back, the dumplings hadn't risen, and they seemed kind of black and shriveled. Nevertheless, she went ahead with it and served the substandard dumplings to the Turner family, which wound up being Eliza's fatal mistake. All members of the family and one of the apprentices ate some of the dumplings, including Eliza herself. Within a couple of minutes, Charlotte started getting sick. The others soon followed. The illness was apparently pretty violent. Orlebar and Robert Turner, the father and the son, spent literally the next six hours from 3 to 9 p.m. barfing. Charlotte complained that her head, tongue, and chest were swollen. Eliza was sick too, an important clue. Sarah, the maid who hadn't eaten the dumplings, went out to fetch a doctor. Eventually, two physicians visited the Turner household that night. Henry Ogilvy, a surgeon, was one, and another doctor, John Marshall, later appeared. Suspicion focused immediately on the pan of dumplings. In the trial records, they're repeatedly referred to as heavy and black. I wouldn't have eaten something like that, but cuisine in the second decade was hardly as standard and uniform as we've come to expect in our modern lives, where much of the food we eat is manufactured on an industrialized scale. In any event, one of the doctors, Marshall, examined the pan that Eliza had made the dumplings in. Marshall was a member of the Royal College of Surgeons, and he had been in the service of the Duke of Gloucester, the son-in-law of King George III. He focused on the water used to wash out the mixing pan, which he said yielded about half a teaspoon of white sediment. Marshall put the powder on a fire grate and sniffed the odor of roasted garlic. This was a crude test of detecting arsenic. If you throw something laced with arsenic into a fire and it smells like garlic, supposedly that's your proof. Not very scientific by today's standards. Marshall also tested one of the uneaten dumplings in a candle flame. He told investigators he smelled garlic most unequivocally. The penny on which he'd put a glob of dumpling dough also discolored. The investigation, pretty perfunctory, focused entirely on Marshall's theory that the dumpling dough had been sprinkled with arsenic and that Eliza, who made the dumplings, had done it. This was the only theory ever investigated, and it seems to have been fully formed almost immediately after the Turner family was sickened. 
Robert Turner told Dr. Marshall and later the court that silverware used in the kitchen was found tarnished and discolored, not unlike Marshall's penny. This was thought to be strong evidence. There's just one problem with this. Arsenic doesn't tarnish or discolor metal. We know that now, but it wasn't common knowledge in the second decade. There was arsenic in the Turner house. At trial, Orlebar Turner testified that quantities of arsenic were kept in two paper wrappers in a drawer in the law stationer's office. Arsenic was commonly used at this time as pest control, especially for rats and mice. Turner said that's what he kept the poison for, but it hadn't been used in a year. A major aspect of the story was how much arsenic was believed to have been in the dumpling dough. A half teaspoon of arsenic recovered from the pan, as Dr. Marshall said, would mean there were about 1,800 grains of poison in the dumplings themselves. A lethal dose was five grains. If the doctor's theory was true, Eliza Fenning really wanted to kill the Turner family. But she didn't. All of them survived. Two days after the poisoning, on March 23, 1815, Eliza Fenning was arrested and taken into custody at Clerkenwell Prison in London. She was brought up on two charges— feloniously administering arsenic with intent to kill, and causing to be taken arsenic with intent to kill. I should tell you that I'm trained as a lawyer, and I don't understand the difference between these two charges. Let's just say she was charged with attempted murder. Eliza protested her innocence loudly, immediately, and consistently. After all, she had eaten the dumplings herself. This was thought of as a diversion to deflect suspicion away from her. But recall that if five grains of arsenic were enough to kill a person, and there were 1,800 grains in the dumplings, she couldn't eat more than a crumb of the stuff without being in serious danger of poisoning herself. She said what had sickened the family was something in the yeast. There was a strange reddish discoloration, she told authorities, in the yeast before she used it. This was the yeast she got from the brewer the morning of March 21st. There was also apparently milk in the dumplings as well, and the milk might have been contaminated. As you might recall from the Kid Lincoln episode of this podcast, drinking milk in the second decade, in the era before pasteurization, could on occasion be dangerous, even fatal. Given the limited means the Fenning family had and the class dynamic working against her, Eliza's defense was pretty pathetic. Her parents, who never doubted her innocence, went around town collecting money for the defense. They managed to raise five pounds. Mr. Alley was hired as her defense attorney. Keep in mind that Orlebar Turner worked in law. He wasn't a lawyer himself, but he worked in the legal profession, knew many lawyers and judges, and had a lot of powerful friends, all of whom took his side. Within a couple of weeks, the trial was up in front of the Central Criminal Court of London, known as Old Bailey. If you've ever seen a movie that involves a criminal trial in London in the 19th century, or even more recently than that, you've probably seen Old Bailey or a representation of it. The officer who presided over Eliza's trial, which began on April 11th, 1815, was John Sylvester, who was the official recorder of London. This is a very old office stretching back to the Middle Ages. The recorder is the senior circuit judge at Old Bailey, hearing criminal trials. Sylvester, who had had this office since 1803, was regarded as a specially harsh and inflexible judge. If you were accused of a crime in London in the second decade and happened to be brought before John Sylvester, God have mercy on you, at least if you weren't rich and powerful. 
Basically, Eliza didn't have a chance. The proceedings of the trial demonstrated just how stacked it was. The witnesses called were Charlotte Turner, who testified about the business of Eliza getting caught going into the boys' rooms, Orlebar, whose testimony centered around Eliza's access to the poison, Roger Gadsden, the apprentice, Robert Gregson Turner and his wife Margaret, who testified how bad it sucked to get sick from the dumplings. Sarah Peer, the maid, testified that Eliza said she didn't like the Turners, especially Orlebar and Robert. The doctor, Marshall, testified about his rudimentary experiments. Of all of these witnesses, Eliza's attorney, Mr. Alley, asked only perfunctory questions. Then the prosecution rested its case. The defense's case was a joke. Allie called Eliza herself, who said, quote, I am truly innocent of the whole charge. I am innocent. Indeed, I am. I liked my place. I was very comfortable. She also claimed, quote, Gadsden behaved improper to me. My mistress came and saw me undressed. She said she did not like it. I said, ma'am, it is Gadsden that has taken liberty with me. The next morning, I said, I hope you do not think anything of what passed last night. She, meaning Charlotte Turner, was in a great passion, and she said she would not put up with it. I was to go away directly, end quote. Apparently, Charlotte changed her mind about firing Eliza later that day, and she stayed. I want to come back to Eliza's testimony about Roger Gadsden in just a moment. The other witnesses called by the defense were all character witnesses who testified that Eliza was a fine, upstanding girl. They apparently made no impression. The jury deliberated and quickly came back with a verdict of guilty. John Sylvester, the recorder, pronounced a sentence of death. What seems to have really happened does appear in the trial transcript, but everybody missed it. It's in Eliza's words, Gadsden behaved improper to me. It is Gadsden that has taken liberty with me. Eliza went into the room of the apprentices, Roger Gadsden and Thomas King, to borrow a candle. She was seen coming out by Charlotte in a state of undress. What do you think happened in that room? The answer is disturbingly familiar to us looking back from the Me Too era. Gadsden tried to sexually assault her. The other apprentice, King, might have tried to stop it or object somehow. Tellingly, at her trial, Eliza and her lawyer tried to call Thomas King as a witness. John Sylvester, the recorder, refused. He said Gadsden could testify for both of them. No one explicitly brought up the issue of sexual assault, and it's couched in the meek and timid language that has so often minimized the experiences of women, both in that time and in ours. It went by unchallenged. Gadsden behaved improper to me. I think he tried to assault her. When she came out of the room, her clothes partially torn off, she was observed by Charlotte Turner, who put two and two together and must have known what was going on. Charlotte tried to frame it as Eliza carrying on in some improper way with the apprentices, which would have justified firing her. Yet she changed her mind later that day. Was it better to have Eliza still employed by the household, dependent on the family for a job, than on the outside? where she might sully the reputation of the Turner family and their business. Who knows? Eliza, for her part, did what far too many women have felt they've had to do after sexual harassment or assault, bear up, move on, pretend it didn't happen, and hope it wouldn't happen again. 
Yet the incident was fabricated by the prosecution into the genesis of a sinister plot that Eliza was mad at having been yelled at by Charlotte Turner, and so she plotted and planned for six whole weeks to poison the family with enough arsenic to kill the entire Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and apparently, according to them, Eliza ate some of these lethal dumplings herself to deflect suspicion. This was the theory that sent her to the gallows. This is the ultimate blaming the victim scenario, and an indication of just how deeply prejudiced the British legal system and the press was against women, especially those who dared to defend themselves against the unwanted sexual advances of men. This aspect of the case, the punishment directed against Eliza for daring to stand up against sexual assault, is missed in almost every retelling of this history. Eliza was shocked and horrified at the verdict. Of course she was. Immediately after the sentence was pronounced, she started writing letters to the court, to the Chancellor of England, even to the Prince Regent himself, asking for a royal pardon. Various supporters of Eliza also tried to intervene on her behalf, but nothing worked. Sylvester's sentence of death stood. Eliza Fenning was executed on July 26, 1815. The authorities charged her grieving parents 14 shillings and sixpence for the return of her body. They didn't have it and had to borrow the money. Five days later, on July 31st, she was buried at a cemetery called St. George the Martyr in Southwark, London. Thousands of people lined the route of the procession of her body. Already, much of London had taken notice of what was thought to be a great injustice. Indeed, public sympathy was so much in favor of Eliza Fenning that a local surgeon, who often obtained cadavers to experiment on from freshly buried dead of lower-class cemeteries, had to tell his typical body snatchers to leave Eliza's corpse alone. Eliza was dead, the damage was done, but some were so outraged by how she'd been railroaded by the legal system that the case of Eliza Fenning was far from over. This is where William Hone, the investigative reporter, enters the story, and he is why Eliza was not forgotten, now more than 200 years later. William Hone was born in Bath, England in 1780 to a literate and upwardly mobile middle-class family. William's father, William Sr., was also involved in law and encouraged his son into that profession. He seems to have liked better reading and debating political and social issues. At the age of 13, William Hone Jr. wrote an essay criticizing the French Revolution, which was then going on. This is a bit ironic because at 16, Hone joined the London Corresponding Society. That was a literary debating society that, later in the period, ran afoul of British law for arguing for causes unpopular among the landed elite and conservative politicians, including defending the egalitarian radicalism of the French Revolution. Anyway, you see where Hone's career was headed even at an early age. In 1800, about the time he got married, William Hone founded a stationary business and circulating library, which eventually morphed into a bookstore. His partner was named John Bone. Why they didn't call their shop Bone and Hone, I'll never know. The business failed anyway. Hone began to earn his living as basically a freelance journalist, submitting pieces for pay to London newspapers and publications. Hone's writings in the early second decade gravitated towards social issues affecting the lower classes. 
His first foray into anything resembling investigative journalism was a series of essays about London's Bethlehem Hospital, an institution for mental patients whose nickname, Bedlam, became a British shorthand term for madness or insanity. Years later, Hone's daughter, Sarah, said, quote, My father was gifted with a high sense of justice and truth, a brave energy, and a force of character that knew no fear, and the greater the obstructions to his object, the more determined his perseverance. His exertions were frequently devoted to the relief of private wrong, as well as a public oppression. To his untiring persistence may be ascribed the release of the cruelly incarcerated lunatic W. Norris, who had been for years chained to an iron frame in a cell in Bedlam, followed by a general reform of treatment and the eventual dismissal of the governor, W. Halslam, about 1813. Hone was already interested in Eliza's case while her trial was going on, and as I explained in the teaser, he was present at her execution, but his role in the case expanded greatly after she was dead. On July 30, 1815, the day before Eliza's funeral, the London Observer published a lengthy essay on the case. The exact author is unknown. Here's a taste of the editorial. Quote, Upon these assertions, solely it is that so many persons have been deluded into an opinion that she was really not guilty. We lament to state that this opinion has led to the commission of acts of outrage, outrage in all caps, which, to say the least of them, are extremely discreditable to those who have been the principal actors. On the morning of the execution, several persons who had been witness to the awful scene proceeded to the house of Mr. Turner in Chancery Lane and conducted themselves in the most unbecoming manner. Straw was brought for the purpose of setting fire to the house, end quote. Droning on for some pages, the Observer editorial made several claims, One was that Eliza's parents exhibited her body in the kitchen window so passersby could gawk at it as a means to make money. Supposedly, they made 40 pounds from this practice. Another was that Eliza, wherever she worked as a servant, was spiteful and malicious, and that she'd attempted to poison the previous family she worked for, the Hardys. The editorial claimed, quote, While with Mr. Hardy, she imbibed an affection for a young man, which seemed greatly to have unsettled her mind and perhaps to that may be attributed many of her subsequent follies. End quote. Note the highly gendered nature of that accusation. Eliza, a hysterical female who can't control herself, gets fixated on a guy, and that's what drives her to try to commit mass murder. Unfortunately, misogyny wasn't the only bitter flavor in the brew cooked up by the Observer editorial. The central accusation, more central perhaps than the general shade thrown at Eliza herself, is that, quote, her father and mother are both from Ireland, that phrase is italicized, and that they are both Roman Catholics. Just to be sure readers didn't miss this, the observer put the words Roman Catholics in capitals. It hardly mattered that this claim was false. Not only were Eliza's parents Protestants, but Eliza herself was baptized by a Protestant minister on the island of Dominica where she was born. William Fenning was born in Suffolk, but because he'd served in Ireland while in the military, there were enough appearances that a claim of being an Irish Catholic, even if factually false, would easily stick in the public's mind. 
This is clearly what the writer of the Observer editorial intended. It's easy to think of the Catholic-Protestant conflict in Britain as a relic of the 16th and 17th centuries, but in reality it never went away. Anti-Catholicism was still rife in Britain in the second decade, and hatred of the Irish was endemic. It had been only 17 years since the Great Irish Uprising of 1798, one of the many instances in which the oppressed of Ireland rose up against their English colonizers. The sectarian conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland itself continued to shape history on both sides of the Irish Sea until the end of the 20th century, and even beyond, as the specter of the dreaded Troubles breaking out again, in part as a result of Brexit, haunts modern British and Irish politics. So there's nothing unusual about these prejudices being weaponized in a newspaper editorial in London in 1815. The question is worth asking, why was the London Observer gunning so hard for Elizabeth Fenning, and so eager to promote the narrative of her guilt? The answer is surprisingly simple. The Observer was the mouthpiece of the British government. The paper had been founded in 1791 as the world's first Sunday newspaper, but its publisher, W.S. Bourne, went broke. To try to keep the paper afloat, he entered a deal where the government heavily subsidized the paper in exchange for editorial control. Part of the subsidy consisted of free copies of the Observer, called specimen copies, that were distributed free to quote-unquote gentlemen of the town, often aristocrats and lawyers. Throughout the second decade, nearly half of the copies of the Observer that were printed were given away in this program. It was inevitable that William Hone would eventually come into conflict with the Observer. Remember how I said he joined the London Corresponding Society in the 1790s? Well, the society often argued in favor of so-called radicals, like Thomas Paine, who was a leading propagandist of the American Revolution and who defended the French Revolution. Members of the LCS also agitated in favor of the Irish Uprising of 1798. In the famous social history book, The Making of the English Working Class, published in 1963, E.P. Thompson cited the London Corresponding Society as an important stepping stone in the development of a working-class consciousness in Britain in the first decades of the 19th century. The reason why I'm mentioning all of this is to drive home the point that the Eliza Fenning case was a stalking horse for basically class warfare in Britain. William Hone very much put himself on the front lines. Many people didn't like the Observer's editorial. A flood of letters reached the paper denouncing its innuendos and correcting its obvious falsehoods, fact-checking, we would say today. But none of the Observer's critics went so far as William Hone, who was deeply offended by the July 30th editorial, and he set out to refute it. Hone swung into action. He began collecting documents, interviewing key witnesses in the case, and compiling a more or less comprehensive dossier of the Eliza Fenning affair and especially her trial. His sense of moral outrage is palpable. No greater folly can be committed by men, he wrote, than to rest satisfied with a general complaint against public abuses without endeavoring to prevent their increase and to expose their pernicious influence. When attention has been once excited and the reality of great enormities has been sufficiently proved, an obligation is imposed on every member of society to pursue investigation with keenness and to call upon others for their assistance. End quote. 
That's exactly what Hone did. In a book totaling over 200 pages, Hone proved that Eliza and her parents were Protestants. He documented her background and her work history, which contrary to what the observer said was exemplary, and he interspersed a word-by-word transcript of the testimony of her trial with frequent editorial interjections, which were far more competent at cross-examination of the prosecution's case than the feeble one offered in court by Eliza's low-rent attorney. He questioned the logical holes in the prosecution's case. He pilloried the decision not to call Thomas King, the other of the two apprentices, to the stand. He demonstrated the logical weaknesses of the flimsy theory as to how and why Eliza supposedly poisoned the dumplings, and he exposed the duplicity and partiality of John Sylvester, the imperious recorder who judged Eliza's case and presided over her trial. Hone documented an incident that should, and I'm speaking from my training as a lawyer here, should have been grounds for an immediate mistrial. In late June or early July 1815, after Eliza had been found guilty but before her execution, a chemist, his name is lost to the record unfortunately, conducted some experiments of his own that refuted the conclusions made by Marshall, the doctor whose testimony about arsenic was so pivotal at the trial. A major part of the prosecution's circumstantial case was that Eliza had to have mixed the arsenic into the dough as opposed to it being sprinkled over the top after the bread rose. This had to do with the doctor Marshall's testimony about arsenic in the bread pan. This chemist, though, mixed together a batch of dumpling dough and then sprinkled arsenic over the top, not baked into the dough, and even brought samples of the test batch to the house of the Turners, where Dr. Marshall was also visiting. All of them agreed the unnamed chemist had a point, one that potentially changed the whole case. Indeed, Orlebar Turner and Robert Turner said that they would sign an affidavit recanting portions of their testimony about the appearance of the dumplings, if it would save Eliza from the gallows. But just as this idea was hatched, John Sylvester showed up. The chemist made his case to him. The Turners appeared to agree, but Sylvester immediately put the kibosh on the idea of signing a petition to the prosecutor. Sylvester took Robert Turner aside. A moment later, he came back and told his father, Orlebar, and the chemist, the recorder, meaning Sylvester, says you must not sign any petition. If you do, it will throw suspicion on the rest of your family. Furthermore, a noted British barrister, Basil Montague, a fighter for the rights of common people who had, among other things, helped reform Britain's bankruptcy laws, conducted his own investigation in which he found evidence that Robert Gregson Turner, one of Eliza's chief accusers, had episodes of severe mental instability in his past. According to a Mr. Gibson, apparently a doctor, though we're not sure, in September or October 1814, Robert Turner went to him in, quote, a wild and deranged state. Gibson said that Turner told him, My dear Gibson, do for God's sake get me secured or confined, for if I am at liberty, I shall do some mischief. I shall destroy myself and my wife. I must and shall do it unless all means of destruction are removed out of my way. Therefore, do, my good friend, have me put under some restraint. The investigation was brought to the recorder, John Sylvester, on the eve of Eliza's execution. He refused to do anything about it. The execution occurred 12 hours later. 
While none of these items prove Eliza Fenning's innocence, they absolutely and unequivocally indicated substantial problems with the prosecution's theory, which had been flimsy to begin with. In strictly legal terms, William Hone was drawing attention to a reasonable doubt of her guilt. At the very least, her execution should have been stayed, pending a new trial. But the one man with the most direct responsibility for her fate, John Sylvester, refused to intervene. Eliza went to the gallows, as we know. So why was Sylvester so hot to trot to destroy Eliza Fenning? The answer is hard to puzzle out, but it's clear that Sylvester wasn't very good at his job as recorder for the City of London, and he was not thought well of by Londoners. Upon Sylvester's death in 1822, a contemporary wrote that he, quote, rendered himself exceedingly obnoxious by his coarseness, the violence of his temper, and his utter disregard for the rules of courtesy. Sylvester was frequently mocked in political cartoons that appeared in London newspapers, especially for his weight and presumed gluttony. More seriously, he was accused of demanding sex from a woman who'd approached him to secure a pardon for her husband. As we know about abusers, if they did this sort of thing once, they probably did it a lot. There's also a deep issue of class going on here intertwined with sexism. It wasn't just John Sylvester. Most of official London lined up against Eliza, including the legal establishment and the London Observer. Obviously, she represented something they hated and feared. As Naomi Clifford, one of the historians who's written on this topic and whose work is a source for this episode, stated very eloquently, quote, For middle-class families at a time of political change, with ideas of equality wafting around Europe, Eliza represented their greatest fear, the resentful servant with revenge on her mind, end quote. In this sense, the plausibility of the prosecution's case didn't even matter. Eliza was to be made an example of. Lower-class women must never, never threaten the privilege or dominance of their upper-class employers, especially men. This, I think, ties into the sexual assault angle. Eliza wouldn't submit to the advances of one of the apprentices. Official London literally found a way to execute her for this, ostensibly legally. You can see why William Hone was so ticked off. In early October 1815, after Hone's investigation was complete, he arranged the printing of a rather comprehensive book on the case, titled An Elaborate Investigation into the Case of Elizabeth Fenning, being a detail of extraordinary facts discovered since her execution. The book did exactly what it said on the tin. On October 7th, Hone sent a letter to the London Observer announcing the publication of his book and asking that it be advertised. The very same day, the editor of the Observer replied with a one-line letter to William Hone. Observer declines this advertisement. The rejection of the advertisement by that paper, Hone wrote, is so entirely at variance with the ostentatious grounds on which the Observer pretends to rely for public patronage, and is so truly consistent with its partiality in the case of Elizabeth Fenning, and its disregard of truth in its representations concerning her case, that I have thought it worthwhile to bestow a little time in exposing the disgrace to which the periodical press has, has sustained by such conduct. End quote. Thus, another appendix was added to Hone's book. 
There was a brief furor in the press and in London society about Sylvester's conduct and the problems with Eliza's trial. After all, the people of London generally seemed to think she was innocent. As you recall, something like 50,000 people lined the streets on the day of her funeral. The Turner family was obliged to keep security guards around their house for several nights. The mob assumed they had framed Eliza. That was clearly one of the narratives of Hone's book. The Fenning trial, though, was only one inning in a long game of Hone and his reformist friends versus official and upper-class London. Both sides doubtless knew this. In 1816, a few months after the end of the trial, Hone opened a new bookshop not far from the Old Bailey, the courthouse where lower-class criminal cases were tried. Hone's friends in this period were typical. John Cartwright was known as an old thorn in the side of the establishment. During the American Revolution, he was one of the few Britons who wrote approvingly and publicly of support for the colonist side. Francis Place agitated for public education and the use of contraception by women, a definite no-no in upper-class British society in the second decade. Charles Phillips, a lawyer at Old Bailey, was in the criminal defense business and argued against anti-Catholic laws and discrimination in Britain. But perhaps Hone's most important and strategic partnership was with George Cruikshank, a cartoonist fond of drawing caricatures that lampooned the British royalty and upper classes. If a guy like this sounds tailor-made to be William Hone's best friend, you're catching on to the kind of vibe that was going on here. On February 1st, 1817, Hone began publication of a new paper called the Reformist Register. Cruikshank was the chief cartoonist. It's significant that the Reformist Register listed as its office address a place only three doors down from Old Bailey, right at the heart of the very legal and governmental establishment that the paper aimed to make a mockery of. The very first page of the first issue of the Reformist Register makes its stance pretty clear. Quote, The House of Commons rejected immense numbers of petitions for parliamentary reform, wholly refused to take steps to reform itself in any way, and even refused to inquire into the acknowledged corrupt state of the representation. Both houses at the same time attempting to restrain freedom of speech by passing gagging bills and sanctioning the proceedings of ignorant, weak, and contemptible ministers. End quote. This was the real issue in British politics in the second decade, parliamentary and governmental reform. Parliament at this time operated on an ad hoc system of districts and representation that dated back to the 14th century. The districts no longer conformed to the realities of the people who members of Parliament were supposed to represent. The rotten boroughs, technical parliamentary constituencies that didn't have very many real residents, if any at all, but still had the right to elect MPs, were a major problem in this period. Most of the rotten boroughs resulted in upper-class landowners being elected to Parliament with virtually no real-world constituents to answer to, which meant they were free to legislate for the interests of the landowning upper class. Hone and Cruikshank got to work trolling the establishment pretty much immediately. Three publications in early 1817 got them into hot water. One was called The Late John Wilkes's Catechism of a Ministerial Member, Another was the political litany, and the third was the sinecurists' creed. These three pamphlets mocked parliament and government ministers by name and used the style of a religious catechism as a form of parody. 
John Sylvester is one of the figures trashed in Wilkes's catechism. If the government and official London needed an excuse to move against Hone directly, these pamphlets provided it. Although they were political in nature and the target was government, the religious parody ostensibly fell under the anti-blasphemy laws that were still on the books in Britain. In April 1817, William Hone was essentially indicted by the Attorney General for England and Wales, Sir William Garrow, on charges of blasphemy and profane and seditious libel. On December 18, 1817, William Hone went on trial before a special jury convened at the Guildhall in London. Running true to form, he and his allies had publicized the event, and at 8 a.m., hundreds of people were crowding the streets in front of the Guildhall, hoping to get seats to see the trial. The Attorney General's deputy addressed the jury, saying, It is charged, and, as I think justly charged, with being a profane, blasphemous, and impious libel. It is avowedly set off against the religion and worship of the Church of England, as established by an Act of Parliament. Hone was sick at the time of the trial, but he bore it as best he could and rose to address the jury and judge, talking for hours. The judge was quite naturally biased against him. Bringing his learning and erudition to bear, Hone argued many examples of parody and satire throughout the history of religion being used as a force for good, focusing strategically on Protestants who were generally venerated in the Church of England, like Martin Luther, to whom Hode compared himself. This was high entertainment for the spectators. The William Hone trial is unnatural for being made into a courtroom drama, and in fact a play based on the proceedings was produced in Britain in 2018. Despite the obvious grumpiness of the judge, Lord Tenterden, the case was given to the jury, which deliberated for less than 15 minutes and came back with a verdict of not guilty. People shouted, Long live the honest jury and an honest jury forever! until the judge banged his gavel and demanded order. Because Hone had been charged for three separate pamphlets, there were three trials. The next two went forward on the two successive days, December 19th and 20th, 1817, each with a different judge, just as prejudiced against Hone as the first one. On December 19th, the jury deliberated from 6.45 to 8 p.m. and came back again, not guilty. The final day of the trial, December 20th, a Saturday, was the real circus. There had been talk that the Crown would scuttle the prosecution, having now lost two in a row on the previous two days with two different juries, but they decided to go ahead anyway. Hone himself was even sicker and more exhausted than before, but he still talked for several hours. The judge this time, Lord Ellenborough, really wanted a guilty verdict. He told the jury before they retired that he thought for sure the pamphlet at issue was a profane and impious libel. He encouraged them to think about the importance of this case and told them that if trash like Hone's rags wasn't prohibited and punished, quote, the country was too liable to be deluged by irreligion and impiety, which had so lately produced such melancholy results in another nation, end quote, that other nation being France. The jury deliberated for 20 minutes. The judge was disappointed. Hone was 3-0, and and a critical precedent in English law had been cemented that parody, even couched in religious language, was protected as freedom of speech. 
This same principle eventually took root in American law and was the basis of the famous 1988 Supreme Court ruling in favor of Hustler publisher Larry Flint, who was sued for libel by fundamentalist preacher Jerry Falwell. The William Hone trial had far-reaching consequences. Right after the trials of December 1817, William Hone was, for a brief time, the most famous and most celebrated man in England. He'd played public opinion masterfully, and he now stood as a stalwart of the freedom of the press against government encroachment. He quickly leveraged his clout in the political satire business. He published numerous satirical books later in the second decade and the 1820s, all illustrated by George Cruikshank, who came to be remembered as the preeminent political cartoonist of his era. Hone and his reformist friends eventually did achieve their broad ultimate goal, the reform of Britain's political system. Hone lived to see the Reform Act of 1832 passed, which was the most far-reaching political self-correction of a European government during the 19th century, and which quite possibly prevented in Britain the same kind of political and social revolutions that had occurred in the American colonies in 1776 and in France in 1789. It was about much more than just the rotten boroughs, though that was part of it. William Hone died of a stroke in North London in the fall of 1842. His daughter Sarah wound up in Australia. Thirty years after his death, in a letter to a Melbourne newspaper which I quoted earlier, she said of him, Of retiring habits, simple yet refined tastes and courteous manners, my father was essentially a gentleman. His society was courted for the attractiveness of his conversation, in which few excelled, and he numbered among his friends many eminent in art, science, and the learned professions, as well as in literature. End quote. But as much as we may celebrate William Hone, let's not forget Eliza Fenning. She was executed unjustly by the state for a host of complicated reasons involving her gender, her class, and the maintenance of upper class privilege that in England in the second decade could not tolerate the slightest challenge. I find it so strange that even the historians who have written about her case have chosen to overlook the words that she told us in her trial were the genesis of the whole thing that happened to her. Gadsden behaved improper to me. It is Gadsden that has taken liberty with me. This case was about class dynamics and investigative journalism and eventually freedom of speech, but it was also about sexual assault the right to be free of which was not nearly as well protected in, as William Hone's right to pen sharp parodies against the powers that be in England. Putting that very important issue aside for the moment, though, this bizarre episode from the second decade does leave us with a mystery. What was the deal with those dumplings? Were they really poisoned or not? If they were, and if Eliza didn't do it, then who did, and why? One of the main sources I used for this episode was William Hone's book, published in 1815. It's available for free on archive.org as a result of a large-scale book digitization project in the last decade. The physical copy of this book that wound up being digitized was apparently held in the library of the Wellcome Institute for the History of Medicine, a London library now apparently defunct. The reverse of the title page of this copy contains a handwritten note obviously written in the 19th century. The more 19th century handwriting you see, the easier it is to recognize it. It reads, first, a name, somewhat illegible. 
died in the workhouse in 1834, confessing that he himself had put arsenic into the dumplings and falsely took away the young girl's life. The name written is hard to make out, though the last name appears to be Taylor, not Turner, and the date is apparently wrong. But Gordon Smith, a British Army surgeon who became England's first professor of forensics in 1828, published a book the next year, 1829, that includes a footnote which quotes a London reporter named John Grant, who told the Morning Journal in May 1829 that, quote, I am assured that a son of Orlebar Turner of Chancery Lane has recently died miserable in Ipswich Workhouse, confessing that he put arsenic into some yeast dumplings to poison his family, and for which crime Eliza Fenning was hanged innocently, end quote. The son was most likely Robert Gregson Turner, who, as you recall, apparently told a doctor friend of his that he was going to kill his family given the chance unless he was locked up. Sarah Byrne, William Hone's daughter, says in her 1872 Melbourne, Australia article that Mrs. Turner, presumably meaning Charlotte, confessed to being the poisoner. Sarah's letter contains several factual errors, so I'm not sure how much we can trust it. But given all the evidence, it seems clear enough that if there was poison in those dumplings, it wasn't Eliza Fenning who put it there. She was put to death for a crime that someone else committed. That miscarriage of justice remains unremedied now after more than 200 years. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. My historical sources for this episode include the important results of an elaborate investigation into the mysterious case of Elizabeth Fenning by William Hone, London, 1815, Naomi Clifford, Eliza Fenning, Innocent But Proven Guilty, guest post on the All Things Georgian blog, June 25, 2015, the William Hone Collection, compiled by Adelphi University, and Sandra Hempel, Eliza Fenning, The Case of the Poison Dumplings, The Telegraph, June 17, 2013. The theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Listen to my other podcast, Green Screen, which is available on the Apple Store, Google Podcasts, and all the major podcatchers. Those of you who like environmental history aspects of this show will probably enjoy Green Screen. You can visit my website at seanmunger.com and see the online courses that are available now. I've got a new audio class on the Persian Gulf War of 1990-91. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash seanmunger. I'd love it if you could become a supporter, where you can get an ad-free version of this show. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.